Well, good evening, everyone. It is uh, good to be gathered together as we celebrate this glorious work of Christ on the cross. And always uh, joyful to be able to fellowship with you, like-minded believers, our church, your church together. I've been very grateful over the years for Lucas's uh, friendship, Jordan's growing, and uh, of course, when we meet together, we're always talking about different things that we can do together, so as many as we can, we will. Um, I think we've got something coming up in May, too, and uh, so it's always a pleasure, always a pleasure to be with uh, like-minded believers, and I want you all to know as well that uh, whenever we are gathering together to pray, we are often praying for your church, that it would flourish, that the Lord would knit you together, grow you in maturity up into Christ with one another, that he would cause you to flourish in every way. So we love you all, and we love to be able to worship with you. That love, of course, comes through the love that has been given to us uh, through Christ. So I want to invite you this evening as we consider the love of God to turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4 is what we'll be looking at tonight. And I just want to read the two verses in the middle of chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. And we'll consider these together. 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 9, we read John writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father, we are grateful for your love manifested in the sending of your Son into the world to ransom, redeem, save, reconcile sinners such as us. We who have been in rebellion against you for our whole lives, we who were under your just condemnation. You determined from long ago, from before we even took our first breath, from before we had ever done anything good or bad, you had determined to redeem us and to do so in a glorious display of holiness, justice, mercy, and grace, all meeting at the cross of Christ. 
Father, as we've gathered together to celebrate this work, to worship you, to meditate upon your word, we pray that through your word, you would encourage our hearts by the gospel, you would correct us in our sin, and you would draw sinners to yourself. As the word goes forth, may it go forth in the power of the Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Of course, this evening we have uh, come together to worship God and to praise Him for the glorious work of redemption that He has accomplished through Christ, His Son. I do think as a Christian that there is always a temptation to forget about this work. To think that we can, in some sense, graduate beyond it and move further on into more important things, more pressing matters. I think especially in the times that we're living in, when the culture appears to be crumbling around us, families are in disarray, men and women are confused as to who they are, Governments and rulers rule as if they are the final authority in all matters. Churches are marked by spiritual apathy and sin. In these times of upheaval and decline, it can be very easy for Christians to believe that there are more important matters to attend to. More pressing things. Different subjects that need to be considered. Different matters that all of our energies need to be given to. Some may say, as some do, we need more of a political theology. Others will say, we need a robust doctrine of the church. We need to recover a a biblical eschatology. We need a philosophy of cultural engagement. We need this. We need that. The world is pressing in on us. And so we have to address these matters quickly because this this issue is the most important one of our time. As we look around and it seems as if we are besieged on all sides, as the wicked appear to be prospering all around, it can be a great temptation to want to pick up all of these different weapons, the sword of ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, the hammer of theonomy and the law of God, to go charging forward at the enemy as if these weapons will suffice to vanquish all of our foes. And the danger is that if we go into battle, if we engage, 
in spiritual warfare, as we should, and we do not have the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat where the shed blood of a bull was shed for a sin offering on the Day of Atonement, if we do not have the ark going before us, where we can fix our eyes as a fixed point that leads us in battle, well, then we can very much end up like the Israelites, drawing swords, getting our most fierce weapons, going into battle, and in a moment being defeated. Because we have gone without God, leading the way. For the Christian, we must never lose sight of the mercy seat, of the shed blood of Christ, whose blood is far superior to that of bulls and goats, as the author of Hebrews tells us. There is never at any point in time a moving beyond the cross. We don't graduate from it. We don't mature beyond the atonement. While every single aspect of Scripture and of theology is good and beneficial for the Christian, for families, the church, even for society, while all of the doctrines of the Word of God are good and useful and beneficial, if we lose sight of the cross, then all of our efforts, all of our fights and struggles will do nothing more than turn us into a self-righteous people and to make Pharisees. The very center of the gospel is the love of God and the shed blood of Christ for sinners. And that center, that foundation of the gospel must always remain the center and the foundation. So that is what I want us to focus our attention on this evening from 1 John 4. Now in the context of 1 John 4, the Apostle John has been exhorting Christians to live in accordance with who they are as those who have been born of God. And perhaps the chief mark of someone who has been born of God not that they've just been born once, but they, they, they have been born twice. They have truly experienced the work of regeneration and the second birth. The defining mark of that person who has been born again and of God is that they love. There is a contrast that runs all throughout 1 John between the one who loves his brother and the one who hates him. And here it continues. John focuses on the Christian, the one born of God, and he says, let us love one another. 
And in verse 8, anyone who does not know God, or excuse me, anyone who does not love does not know God. And then here, he grounds this particular statement in the very nature of God Himself. He's going to support his argument by appealing to the nature of God. He says, because God is love. This is who God is. This is one of His distinguishing attributes. Just as if you were to speak of the nature of God and you were to to rightly describe God as a holy God. You were to describe Him as an eternal God, as an omnipotent God, as an all-knowing God. So also, if you are to speak of God, you must include as one of His chief defining attributes the love of God. This is part of His nature. Now for many people, this is all they want to say about God. God is love and nothing more. As if that's a sufficient statement in and of itself. All alone. It's a statement that needs no defining. It doesn't need any sort of explanation to it. It can stand on its own. We can simply say, God is love and allow everyone to define it however they please. The Welsh preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, once lamented about this very way of thinking in his own day. He spoke about how men used this very statement to draw a sharp divide between doctrine, or what we used to call dogmatics, on the one hand, and the love of God on the other. They say that all this doctrine causes divisions. Maybe you've heard that before. I've heard that plenty, even today. Doctrine is what divides people. They say that the great mistake and the problem in the church over the centuries has been making such a big deal about doctrines like the atonement, like justification, like sanctification. But I, says the Enlightenment, I say only that God is love. And then that's enough for me. This is how many men fought in Lloyd-Jones' day, and it's still, of course, how many people think in our own day. Nothing has changed. The same Scriptures are twisted for the same kind of destruction. All of this talk of doctrine is just too far over my head. Or it's the source of contention. Why can't we all just agree that God is love? But even just a cursory glance at 1 John, the very epistle where this statement is made, shows you that the Apostle John himself did not share this opinion, this way of thinking. God is love is not a statement that is made in isolation. 
nor is it one that is said and then left without any definition at all as if John intends for us simply to use our own imaginations and to come up with whatever definition pleases us. For if that were the case, we would all have thousands, millions of different interpretations of different definitions of what it means that God is love. And inevitably, because of our own fallen and sinful heart, we would fashion a loving God after our own image and become idolaters. Now, the moment he says these words that God is love, he finds that it warrants an explanation. He needs to say more. There's something that has to be added to this. It needs a shape. It needs a form. He has just made a statement about the very nature of God. And the nature of God cannot be left up to our own thoughts. But again, we cannot think our way to Him. We will become idolaters. To know something about the nature of God requires that God reveal it to us. Again, you cannot imagine or think your way to Him. You can't make a series of deductions and inferences that lead you to an accurate apprehension of His nature. For you to know anything about His nature requires that He reveal it. And this revelation, the very revelation that we need, is what John, a prophet and an apostle, goes on to provide. He gives us an explanation, a doctrine that reveals the love of God to us. He speaks here about how the love of God is known, how it is seen, and how it is to be understood. And what we find is that the love of God is not simply a concept. It's not an idea. It's concrete. It's incarnate. It's embodied. It has a form to it. It is manifested in real history. John says again in verse 9, if you look with me there, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. God has not left us to guess about what the statement God is love could possibly mean. He has shown it to us. And He has shown it to us, the text says, in that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And then He adds in verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now as we read this, as we hear it, we find, of course, that the love of God cannot be separated from doctrine, and it certainly cannot be separated from the doctrine of atonement. That's what shapes it. This is exactly how John explains his 
statement. He moves to the doctrine of atonement. Perhaps even more importantly, we need to recognize that this explanation is intended to hit us with a certain force to it. When we hear the words, God loved us, this should be a jarring statement, one that stops us in our tracks, one that makes us question, did I hear that right? God loved us. He loved me. But the only way that this statement can be shocking in any way and in the right way is, of course, if we're thinking with the right categories and the right assumptions, if we're thinking about ourselves, about God, about the world as the biblical authors are thinking. You see, for many people, of course, God loved us is not a shocking statement at all because they think of themselves, well, I love me too. Why wouldn't God love me? Aren't I just lovable? Isn't my heart good? I consider myself a rather kind-hearted and gentle person. I'm a good person. Of course God would love me. Many people believe that simply by virtue of being born as a human, as a member of the human race, God's love, His affections, His blessings are lavished upon you. And many people think this way because they do not have the right starting point. They start with the assumption that they're good. They start with the assumption that they're righteous. But this is a grave error. In fact, a deadly one. You start there, and you do end up in hell. You cannot start with that position. Look with me at what John says again at the end of verse 10. He says, God sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's the starting assumption. It's found at the end of this verse. The way that John is operating is with the base level understanding that we're sinners. We've committed great sins. And this is never a small thing in the eyes of a holy God. Nothing unclean. Nothing impure, nothing unholy, nothing sinful can ever dwell in His presence. There is no fellowship between light and darkness. 
That's one of the other themes as you see all throughout 1 John and even in John's Gospel. There is no fellowship between light and darkness. It is, in a very real sense, a black and white issue. There's no spectrum to be found. Darkness cannot be in the presence of a holy God. And we are not born in light, but in darkness, and therefore are not in fellowship with God, but rather are at enmity with Him. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians describes the natural, sinful man as a child of wrath. Not a child of God. Many people, again, believe. They they start with this base-level assumption that we're all children of God. Paul says, no. Apart from Christ, you're a child of wrath. You're under His judgment. He says further on that the man, apart from Christ, is dead in his trespasses and sins. He's an ally to the devil. He follows the prince of the power of the air. When the devil marches forward, he follows right behind him. When Satan gives a command, he obeys it. He delights in it. Paul says further that that the sinful man is counted among those who are called sons of disobedience. He's futile in his mind. He's darkened in his understanding. His mind doesn't even function properly. This is what theologians call the noetic effects of sin or the noetic effects of the fall. The very mind of a man does not have the capacity to reason as God had originally intended a man to reason. And certainly, when it comes to moral wisdom, he is bankrupt. You... you, You look around at at society and and culture today and the crumbling of Western civilization. When you see these things and and you wonder, I cannot believe what what I'm seeing, you should also tell yourself, noetic effects of sin. This is the futility of the mind. Paul says further that the man is alienated from the life of God. He's callous. He's hardened in heart. It is not as if the sins of a man are nothing more than unintentional mistakes of a helpless creature. He has not accidentally crossed into enemy territory. No, the natural man is by nature an enemy of God, closing his eyes to all the light of God that is shining towards him and subduing every ounce of truth and righteousness by his sin. He actively works against it from the very core of his heart because there's no life. There's no light 
It's just death. And because of this, he has God as his enemy and his judge. In fact, Jesus says the very same thing. John chapter 3, verse 18, when he's speaking of all unbelievers, what does he say? He says that they stand condemned already. Not just that it's coming, but that now, if you have not believed, you are under condemnation. The starting assumption, the necessary foundation for understanding the shocking nature of what John says in our passage is this, that all men by nature stand condemned before a holy God. And if you understand this, if you begin here as the apostles begin here as the prophets before them begin here as you should, it is then that the true power and the grace of these words, the power and the grace of God can not only be, be, be heard, but felt as if it hits you. This God whom we have sinned against has manifested His love for us. How has He done it? He's done so by sending His Son into the world. Sending him, John says, into this fallen dominion, which he later says lies in the hands of the evil one. The Father has sent the Son into enemy territory to do what? For what purpose? Why was he sent? Was it to kill us? He could have done that. He could have judged us just as He judged the world in the days of Noah through a flood. The whole world. He could have done that. Did He send Him into the world to condemn us? Should we respond to the sending of the Son into the world as the demons responded to Him? Well, what have you to do with us, Son of God? Have you come to torment us? They know a day of judgment is coming for them. Is that how we are to respond to the sending of the Son into the world? Has He come for our death? Well, John says no. He was sent into the world so that we might live through Him. Now this, of course, provokes another question. How can this be? If Jesus were to say to those demons oppressing those men, for however long it had been, tormenting these men, if He were to have said to those demons, 
What gave you the idea that I came to torment you? What gave you the idea that I came to condemn you? Enter into paradise. If he was to say to the devil himself after he had deceived Eve, or to Job after he had afflicted him, or to Judas after he had entered into him to betray Jesus, or to Peter after he had asked to sift him like wheat, or to anyone else that he, like a lion, seeks to devour. If he has afflicted someone, and then Jesus immediately goes to Satan and says, enter into paradise. There'd be an outrage. What is this? There'd be a war in heaven. Probably the angels in heaven would be offended by this. We would and should be offended. Why? Because God is a just God. That would be unrighteous. You can't just let the devil off the hook. You must punish him. It's contrary to who you are as a just and holy God. And yet somehow, He can say to us, you may live. How can that happen? We are in no better position than the demons. We have not acted in any more righteous ways. We do not have some superior nature to them. We are, in a very real sense, lower than them. And yet he can say to us, you can live. can he do this? It's because of verse 10. In this is love. Not that we loved God. We didn't love God. We weren't seeking God. We should have no illusions whatsoever that there was ever a moment in our life when we began seeking after God. Until God does a divine work within the very core of our souls and gives us a new birth, we will rebel against him and act like the demons. We did not love him. We were at enmity with him. But in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The answer for how the righteous God can love and give life to unrighteous men is found here in that Christ was sent to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a word that we don't often use. Don't think you're probably sitting around your dinner tables or driving in the cars and saying, when's the last propitiation you had? It's a very foreign word in many respects, but for the Christian it should be a very important vocabulary term that we hold on to, that we remember and embrace because this word really gets right to the heart of the gospel. 
Propitiation describes the work of the atonement, its effects, what it accomplishes. When a sacrifice is offered as a propitiation, it does two things. One, it removes or it covers a person's sin, and the other is that in covering sin, it appeases the wrath of God. And the sacrifice is able to do this because it serves as a substitute on behalf of the one for whom it is offered. In the Old Testament, the blood of bulls and goats for sin offerings and guilt offerings was shed as a substitute for the sins of the people. Instead of God judging them as they rightly deserve for their many sins, instead of Him pouring out His wrath upon them, He pours out His wrath on the animal as a substitute. The blood of the animal, its very life, was given up for the sinner, and the sinner was spared not because God determined to withhold His judgment, not because He laid His justice to the side, but because His judgments were satisfied on the substitute. And of course, the blood of bulls and goats was but a type of the true substitute who was to come in the coming of Jesus Christ. And so when John says that the Son was sent into the world to be the propitiation for our sins, he is saying that the Son came to be a substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf for us. He came to stand in our place. He came to be our representative, a, a new representative. We needed a new representative. Before Him, all we had was Adam. And what did He give us? Death. Judgment. He came to be our new representative. He came to cover our sin. He came to die so that we might live through Him. At the cross, the true sacrifice was offered on our behalf. Jesus became sin so that through Him we might become righteousness. He bore the wrath of God that our sins deserved. The judgment of God was poured out upon Him. The wrath of God was satisfied upon Him. God never withheld His judgment from us or neglected His justice. Rather, at the cross, He upheld His justice. He executed it. He carried out the sentence. He carried out the penalty of death. The wages of sin were paid in full. But instead of the death penalty landing on us, it landed on the Son. It landed on the very one who had been sinned against. He himself freely offered 
his own life and his blood of eternal worth to cover the eternal penalty of our sins. He is our propitiation. And in this great substitution, in this sweet exchange, the love of God is manifest because the very one who was offended, the one whom we sinned against, the one whose name had been blasphemed by our own lips, the one whose image had been corrupted through our wickedness, the one whose glory had been exchanged for the glory of created things, the one whose word had been rejected, the one whose patience had been tried, the one whose promises had been spurned, this one is the very one who acted to reconcile us to himself. He's the one. We had sinned against God and God himself provided an atonement for our sins in the person of his son. We had despised him. We had hated him. We had hardened our hearts against him. And yet, and yet, he determined, determined to make us his own. In fact, the Apostle Paul says, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, another passage very similar to this one, that God shows his love for us. He shows it, he reveals it, he manifests it. How? In that while we were still sinners. Christ died for the ungodly. He died for us. This, brothers and sisters, this is mercy. This is grace. And all of this great work is seen at the cross of Christ. It was at the cross that God's holiness and His justice and His mercy and His grace all converged and was manifest in the Son. For at the cross, you see His holiness being upheld and that a sacrifice was offered for sin. You see His justice being upheld and that judgment is carried out against sin. You see His mercy being upheld and that the sentence that we guilty sinners deserved is not given to us. And you see His grace being upheld in that the ungodly are reconciled to God and even more made righteous before Him and given eternal life and given the hope of an inheritance come. That's grace. This, this is the great love of God manifest through the Son. But the only way that that love and that propitiation can be of any benefit to you at all is if, of course, you are united to the Son, joined to him. 
outside of the Son, there is no love of God. Outside of the Son, it's just wrath. Judgment against sin. There is no life apart from the Son. There is no hope of forgiveness, of redemption, of eternal life apart from the Son. There is no propitiation. There's no atoning sacrifice to be found anywhere else except in the Son. So what do you have to do? You must join yourself to Him. You must, as it were, you must lay your hands upon that sacrifice that was offered as a sign of your sins being placed on Him. As He stands in your place as a substitute, you must give your sins to Him. You do that, friends. You do that by believing in Him. You receive what God holds forth to the guilty sinner. You trust that as He extends this promise, as He extends this gift, as He says through the Son, come unto Me, you trust that His words are true and that if you come to Him, He will not kill you. He will not look at you with a scowl and with wrath and anger and judgment if you heed His Word and come to Him. He will receive you as His own. All your sins being washed away. All the penalty being completely cleared. So you must confess your sin. You must go to Him. You must cry out to Him. Perhaps for the first time, but even if it's not the first time when you sin, you go to the Lord. You don't flee from Him. You don't hide as in the garden in some futile effort to disappear from the omnipotence and omnipresence of God. You go to Him. You confess your sins. You lay hold of Christ. And when you do, you will find that God will not look upon you in anger, but He will look upon you as His very own Son. And you will know nothing of His eternal wrath, but will come to know everything of His eternal love. The love of God, you will be able to say, was manifest to me. Christ died for me. So friends, take hold of Him. Trust in Him. Receive Him. And He will wash you of all your sins. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, what grace and mercy You have given out of the sheer abundance of your love, you determined 
to save a guilty people. As we were in the midst of rebellion against you, as we wanted nothing to do with you at all, at some point, you sent your word, you sent your gospel, you sent a servant with the gospel, you sent your holy, powerful word to us by the Spirit. And as we were seeking to blind ourselves from your light, as we were covering our very eyes, gouging them out so that we would not ever see your glory, you gave us new eyes. You took that stony heart out and you put a living one in. And you gave us new ears. And you clothed us with flesh. You made us new and breathed your spirit into us and made us a living creature. And when opening our eyes for the very first time, because of your grace, we saw Christ in the gospel and we ran to him knowing that in him all of our sins were forgiven and we were clothed in righteousness. And Father, I pray for all of your people here that we all would never move beyond this sweet exchange that is revealed in the gospel. And Lord, I pray that in the same way you did a miraculous work on our behalf and you gave us new life, that you would do the same for any sinner here who does not know you. That out of the abundance of your love, you would be gracious and bring a sinner to yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.